Morning, everyone. My name's Annie, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading today. And we are reading Titus chapter 1. Steve did ask me to read one of the quotes using a funny accent, but I don't know what accent they used back then, so I'm I'm just going to not do that. All right. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, He is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting the whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. If you've been uh, following along in the sermons at church, you'll realize that we've put a hold on Ephesians. We should have been looking at Ephesians 6 today, and Tom would have been preaching to us. But he comes out of isolation today, so early in the week we thought that might be a bit of a gamble to... Um, have him preaching today. Uh, so we're jumping ahead into what we're going to do next. We're working through Titus for um, three weeks, then we'll come back to Ephesians in a few weeks' time. And this morning, um, or this afternoon rather, there's um, Andreas and Monique's wedding. So if anything about Ephesians 5 or wedding stuff sneaks into the sermon, that's just, that's just what's happening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at this part of the Bible now, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth a little better. Lord, we pray that as we understand the truth, that we would be living lives that are godly and in service of you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been around a while, I think I would have shared this story before. But when I was in about year nine in high school, we had this uh, special extraordinary youth group meeting where we had um, an old youth group leader come back and join the group um, to explain to us how we can receive the second blessing, 
the thought being that if you're a genuine, complete Christian, then the Spirit will be at work in you in such a way that you will speak in tongues, and that was in those days called the second blessing. The trick is, though, if you follow that line of thinking, you would realise, actually, this person was false teaching. They were leading these young people, including myself, astray, leading us to think that we needed something extra, something special to be a complete Christian, making us question whether trusting in Jesus was sufficient to be a Christian. made us feel like we were being frauds if we claimed to be a Christian but couldn't speak in tongues, undermining our faith and our confidence and our salvation in that way. That youth group leader, yeah, they were a false teacher. They were false teaching. And it would have been beneficial to that youth group and to the church if someone had pulled him aside and rebuked him and corrected him. It would have been beneficial to the church. It would have also been beneficial to that person and their own understanding of the truth of the gospel. Um, as you leaf through the pages of history, you find many more examples of damaging lies where over the years Christians have added further requirements to what it means to be a genuine Christian. Um, things like needing to be more Jewish, for example. You'll see it in this passage, this circumcision group, this group of people that were saying to Gentile Christians who've become Christians, actually, you've also got to be more Jewish now. You've got to start eating like us. You've got to start being circumcised like us. I don't know why they call it a circumcision group or a circumcision party because it doesn't sound pleasant at all. But it undermines the truth of the completeness of the gospel with lies that humans are making up. Those sorts of lies, they end up tearing apart friendships as people argue over them, tearing apart families and homes and churches because that's what lies do over time. They undermine relationships. Even the apostle Peter found himself living in a way that was inconsistent with the truth of the gospel that he preached. He found himself in a situation where he would withdraw from fellowship with Gentile Christians, presumably because he was afraid of what the circumcision group might say, what these Jewish people might say when they saw him mixing with Gentiles. Lies, lies are complicated and twisted like that. They cause all sorts of damage, sometimes in ways you couldn't even predict. So the Apostle Paul says he confronted Peter on that one to his face, tackled the lie head on, confronted Peter, told him he was wrong. And if you want to see the details behind that, go into Galatians 2. You'll find it there. Lies are deceptive. Lies are destructive. Lies put layer upon layer of dark complexity into relationships, tear apart friendships, tie things in knots, fracture churches, disrupt whole households. And in contrast, the truth of the gospel cuts through all that mess. The truth of the gospel is liberating, freeing. As we understand that Jesus is the only way that we can be forgiven, as we appreciate the significance of his death on the cross, the burden's lifted. You don't have to perform anymore. You don't have to be something that you're not. As we enjoy the freedom that comes from the, from the gospel, you, you can live with a clear conscience, stand before God forgiven, not feeling guilty any longer. There's transparency. You don't have to hide your sin. You confess it. Acknowledge it. The truth is refreshing. That The gospel truth, it brings confidence to Christians, reassures us. It doesn't undermine. But there's lies everywhere. Lies that 
are attractive to us. And it all started in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Where Eve fell for a lie, when the serpent deceived Eve into thinking that she should eat the fruit that, that God said they shouldn't eat from. Um, remember the serpent's slippery lie? He goes, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Just twisting the facts, twisting the truth. And then the serpent goes, you won't die. It's a lie. An absolute lie because now we all die because Eve listened to that snake and Adam didn't stop her. Um, people still believe that same lie that Eve and Adam fell for. They still believe that you can live life without God in the picture, live life our way, be the ones who determine right from wrong. But it's a lie. God is God. Humanity has built so much on that precarious lie that we can be our own boss, our own gods. The truth of the gospel of Jesus cuts through lies and the truth of the gospel, as you come to understand it, it transforms the way you live. It changes your life. When we acknowledge that God is God, that we are his creatures, that we ought to live to please him, the change begins in us. When we live with Jesus as our Lord and our King and our boss, we conduct ourselves in a way that's transformed, changed. As we look to Jesus as our Saviour, then the thankfulness to God overflows and you see it in our lives. So the truth of the gospel shapes us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and the lies that are thrown at us, to live in a way that's pleasing to God. The truth of the gospel of the salvation of Jesus, it leads to godliness like that. And so with that kind of lengthy introduction, as I've been going through these things, yeah, you can see it all reflected in Titus. But as you come into Titus chapter 1, what we're looking at here is the truth that leads to godliness. Or um, you may have a version that says truth that is in accordance with godliness. Here in Titus chapter 1, we see the Apostle Paul is concerned with the truth of the gospel, concerned that the truth of the gospel is held up, lived out, teached, taught rather, um, defended. What we're looking at is this really short letter, a letter from the Apostle Paul to his co-worker in the gospel who he left on the island of Crete and yet still exists. It's still there. Um, Paul left Titus on Crete um, and he's writing to Titus in Crete. But as you read this letter, it's a little bit strange because he knows Titus. He doesn't need to introduce himself to Titus, and yet he does introduce himself to Titus. And I think that's because he's writing in a way which makes, makes this a letter that can be shared in the church. So it's like this open letter where Paul himself acknowledges who Titus is. And it's like Titus, as he, as he, as he works in the, among these Christians, as he reads this letter and shares it with them, it's like Paul saying, yeah, Titus is the one I've chosen to look after you people. It kind of gives Titus that sort of authority among those believers. And this letter, it contains instructions from Paul to Titus in a form that could be read among the church, kind of you know, giving uh, Titus permission to appoint these elders to look after the truth. And so the first verse, um, Paul introduces himself and the truth that leads to godliness. Um, Paul says he's a servant or a slave is maybe a better translation, a slave of God. That's pretty straightforward. He's serving God. Um, Paul's an apostle. That means he's an appointed messenger, someone who's speaking on behalf of someone else. In this case, he's an apostle of Jesus. Um, he's simply making the point that he's sent by Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. 
He's an apostle for the faith of God's elect. There's an acknowledgement there that God is the one that elects. God is the one that chooses. Here's Paul. He's preaching this gospel, but he's preaching it to God's elect, the ones that God is at work in. It's God that does the real work of changing people's hearts. God chooses who will listen, and Paul's acknowledging that. He says he's an apostle for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of the truth, and he adds the truth that leads to godliness. That's verse 1, and as you read on, you discover um, how Paul does his job as an apostle. He does his job by proclaiming the truth about Jesus, the truth of the gospel. So if you have a look at verses 2 and 3, Paul's job as an apostle involves preaching God's word, teaching the truth about Jesus, preaching um, that truth which will lead to godliness, will lead to a change in life. From verse 3, Paul's making a pretty big claim. He's saying he's got the truth. Paul's claiming he has got the truth, which you look at that and you think, yeah, Christianity, we're not basing our faith on something we, we can't understand. We're not basing our fact on a maybe, on an unfounded hope. We're basing our faith on the truth. Rather than tra- uh, we're trusting in something that, it, that we can ground our faith in, the truth. And you think about that a little bit more and you realise, yeah, as Christians, we're making an exclusive claim, aren't we? We're saying, we've got the truth. We've got what's right. Sure, everyone else is free to believe what they want to believe, but we can't all be right. And we're claiming that here in the gospel we have the truth. Implication is, there's lots of lies out there. That's the way this thing works. So far, um, you don't see the gospel truth fully explained, but he alludes to what it is. Verse 2, the hope of eternal life. Verse 3 talks about God as our saviour. Verse 4, it has Jesus as our saviour. He's giving these little snippets of the complete gospel, which will get unpacked as you keep reading. Down in 2 verse 11, um, the gospel is the grace of God, and the, the gospel also brings salvation. And then you come to 2 verse 12... Um, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. There it is. The truth of the gospel will change our lives. Um, Ahead in chapters 3, 5 to 7, there's a summary of the way the gospel works, um, which which leads to an instruction to be godly in verse 8. But for the moment, we're back here in point one. Paul preaches the gospel, the gospel truth, which leads to godliness. Next thing he says is, is the second point in the sermon outline. He wants Titus to be appointing people there in Crete, appointing men to defend the truth of the gospel. He wants Titus to be there standing up for the truth, preserving the truth, teaching the truth, living the truth. In verses five to nine, um, Paul describes the practical means of help in maintaining the truth, and that is to... Verse 5, appoint other elders. So verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We're a Presbyterian church. It's a big and hard word to say. It just means elders. We're a church that has elders. But Paul's writing this, you know, 1,500, 1,600 years before the Westminster Confession was ever put together. So as he writes this, he doesn't have you know, Kirk Sessions in mind. In other words, he doesn't have what we call elders in mind as he writes these things. And I think we need to remember that. We need to be careful that as we read elders in this passage, we don't think of 
our idea of elders. Do it the other way around. Look at what Paul describes an elder should be like and let that change the way we think about what elders are. Do it that way around. Um, you'll notice uh, there's no election process here. They don't call a congregational meeting and take nominations. Paul is there. I mean, Paul tells Titus just to appoint these elders. We don't know how that was really done. So just tuck that away in the back of your mind. So Paul tells Titus to appoint these elders. What are these elders to do? If you jump down to verse 9, it says there, he or an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there the role of the elder is to defend and to teach the truth of the gospel, to uphold the truth of the gospel. How does Titus know who he should or could appoint as an elder or an overseer? If you look at verses 6 to 8, you've got the summary there. They're to be blameless, or you might translate that you know, above reproach in verse uh, 6a and 7b. So if you look at 6a, an elder must be blameless. Down in verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. If you want to you know, discredit a politician, you, know, you look for the things which they've said one thing and they've done another. They said don't have parties during COVID and they've gone and done it and they don't brush their hair. You look at things like that and there's this behaviour that shows an inconsistency. You've got dirt on them. You dig deep and you can find stuff which will undermine people listening to them. These men who Titus is to appoint as elders, you shouldn't be able to do that. They're above reproach. There's no dirt you're going to dig up on them. Um, how's uh, Titus going to find such men in the churches in, on this island of Crete? Well, down in verse 6, their blamelessness, you'll see it in their homes. So verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, the husband of what one wife, your, your passage might say. I don't think it's saying an elder has to be married. I think it's the faithfulness that's the point here. Faithful to one wife. Um, you keep reading, the NIV um, goes, uh, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe. And then the NIV has a, a footnote down the bottom of the page. It says, or children who are trustworthy, which I think matches the second half of the verse. So a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being disobedient. In the back of your minds, you've got um, verse 1 of this short letter where Paul talks about the faith of God's elect. It's God who changes people's hearts. So as a parent, yeah, we teach our kids the truth of the gospel of Jesus. We live it in front of them. We pray, though, that God will be the one working in their hearts, changing them, because that's the job that God does. And so as you keep that in mind, as you look at this verse, I think what it's saying is, um, the, 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 the behaviour of the children of an elder will reflect their ability to manage their own home. In other words, flip it around the other way. If you want to find someone who you would be game to make an elder in the church, well, look at the job they're doing at home. Can they do it there? Well, then maybe they can do it in the church. I think that's the way this is working. The elder needs to be able to manage his own home if you want him to manage the church family too, or put it the other way around. If you want to know what a person is like, look at their family. I think that's part of the reason why living in community as Christians is an important thing. It's another reason why you know virtual church doesn't work because virtual church you don't get to see the stuff that's off screen, the unedited bits, the real life of the person. You can you can fool some people, 
some of the time. You can probably fool all people some of the time, but you certainly can't fool everyone all of the time. And in your home, you can't hide. Your kids know everything about you. You can't fool them. So if you want to know what a person's like, look into their family, look into their home. And so as Titus is asked to appoint these elders who will stand up for the truth and defend the truth, who are blameless, there's no dirt on them, he's saying, look at what their home life's like. Let that be the gauge. Remember these standards, uh, they're necessary in verse 7a because the elders, they're going to do God's work. They're going to stand up for the truth of the gospel. They're going to manage God's household. In verse 7, he lists the unacceptable qualities for an elder. So it says, since an overseer, same idea, same word, or a bishop, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gains. It's just this list. I mean, you could add more, couldn't you? This list of unacceptable qualities, and then you've got the necessary qualities in verse 8. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So Paul wants Titus to appoint elders, verse 5. They are to defend the truth of the gospel, and they are to be models and examples of a godly life. And so the men Titus should appoint will live out the truth. They'll be above reproach, and you'll see it in the way they manage their homes. Um, As Paul writes this open letter, he's spelling out, I think, how every Christian should live. I mean, you appoint the leaders or the elders to do what you want everyone to do. So as you look at this list, it's talking to us too, all of us. This is how we should be living. If we understand the truth of the gospel, we shouldn't be quick-tempered. We shouldn't be overbearing. We shouldn't be given to drunkenness. We shouldn't be violent. We shouldn't be pursuing dishonest gain. We should be hospitable. We should be people who love what is good, who are self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We do have this, you know, this tendency to drop down to the com- lowest common denominator. So if everyone's doing it, yeah, you can do it too. It's one of those tests you do with the kids. They come home and they say, oh, can I do such and such? And you say, oh, who other, which other parents are letting their kids do that? Or oh, no one. It's, but we do, like, we have this kind of, let's all drop down to the lowest common denominator. So when you appoint people to be the elders, you appoint people who will hold the standard high. But it's a standard you're expecting of everybody. As Christians who live in the light of the truth of the gospel, we want to stand out as people who understand the gospel. So Paul, he's writing this open letter to Titus explaining that he preaches the gospel truth which leads to godliness, um, declares that he wants Titus to be defending and preaching that same truth and to be appointing elders to do the same. You're thinking, well, why is this so important? Why is it worthy of a letter to Titus? Well, that's because there's threats to the truth, particularly the damaging lies in Crete, and you'll see it from verse 10. So verse 10, For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Those people I described before, trying to make new converts to Christianity be more Jewish, to be more Christian. Ruining whole households, that's what he says they're doing. They need to be silenced. They need to be stopped for, their, for the benefit of the church, but also for the benefit of the ones who are producing this false teaching for the benefit of their own salvation. There's deceivers out there who are prepared to distort the truth. And they don't come in with you know, an A-board saying, I'm a liar. They don't do that. They sneak in. They twist the truth. I mean, you look at the, the devil's lie in the Garden of Eden. It had a bit of the truth in it, just distorted, 
deceiving um, Adam and Eve. But the way you tell whether someone is a false teacher or not, whether they're living a lie or not, is you look at their actions. It will eventually, their actions will eventually betray them and show for what they are. Um, lies are like that. So verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. It'll show. If you watch carefully, it'll show. The truth of the gospel is just as much under attack today as it was back then. I gave you that example from years ago when I was growing up, but it's everywhere. We have ordained Christian ministers who teach that the resurrection wasn't really genuine. We have ordained Christian ministers that say there's any way to God, whatever, everybody's in. We have um, Christian leaders who teach um, that Jesus is not the only way to God. We've got youth group leaders who teach you need a second blessing to be more Christian. These people, they're propagating lies. They're causing grief, destroying whole households. What's to be done about these false teachers? Verse 11, they must be silenced. That's fairly strong. Or down in verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they, they, so that they will be sound in the faith. Notice the, the emphasis there on looking after the false teacher, getting them back on track. We need to be able to guard the truth and don't lose sight of the fact in verse 13, we're trying to help everyone understand the truth, even those who've got it wrong. If we're going to correct false teachers, then, well, you need to be convinced that you've got the truth, don't you? If you're going to stand up for it, you need to be convinced that you have the truth. Um, and you need to be persuaded of the damage that false teaching does. So verse 11, they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by th teaching things that ought not to be taught. And you have that in contrast. These people who are ruining households, leaders or elders who know how to manage households. Deliberate contrast there, I think. There's one verse I've stepped around so far, and that's verse 12. It sounds like the people of Crete have a reputation for their behaviour, their bad behaviour. So it says in verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Verse 13 says their own prophets are right. It's the people on this island of Crete. They've got a bit of a bad reputation. It's like anyone in New South Wales. It's just this, this thing about them. They're known for who they are. Um, in verse 13, it appears to be a call to um, be more resolved and firm in, being, in correcting and rebuking these people. But there's a bit of an aside here, and I think there's a, just a, a word that I think we read the wrong way and misunderstand. That's the word cretin. Don't think cretin. It's different. Um, cretin, well, if you Google it sometime, it's, it's a poor taste kind of insult because cretinism is something which is a medical condition. You can't control it. It's like calling someone a nasty name. But what you've got here in verse 12, it's not cretinism, it's the Cretans, the people of the island of Crete. Just tuck that away. So you put all this together. First point, Paul preaches the gospel truth which leads to godliness. Second point, he wants godly men appointed to defend and teach the gospel truth. And the third thing is because there are damaging lies lived in Crete. And then he's kind of put this all together for us, things to think through as we seek to proclaim and defend and model the truth. It is a fairly serious passage of the Bible, isn't it? It's a short letter, but this is a serious passage as you think about the truth of it. Let's pray for each other that we are hanging on to the truth, that we understand the truth of the gospel ourselves and that we're living it. 
Um, it is important to learn the truth of the gospel. Knowledge, as a Christian, knowledge matters. Understanding a way around the Bible is important because the truth's there. Knowing it is important. So pray for each other. Also, think about our actions as Christians because our actions matter. We say a lot in what we do. And as Christians, it matters what we do. The truth of the gospel has to shape our lives. You need to be able to see in the way that we're living that that's what we believe. There's also implications here for the important role that leaders will have in churches. Yeah, sure, he might have had a different idea to elders than what we have, but everything he says about elders ought to make us think about our elders and ministers, not just in this church but across our denomination. There's also the need to be correcting false teaching and doing it in a way that defends the truth correctly, not just getting into a barney over this, that or the other, but correcting false teaching in a way that also helps the people that have got it wrong. And even as you say that, realising that, yes, there's points where we will be corrected too. It's very humbling when someone points out your errors. You've got to listen. Take it on board, work out what they're saying, whether they're right or wrong, and then act accordingly with the humility that comes with the gospel. But I think the most obvious place for us to start as we think about applying the truths in this chapter is, yeah, look at your own lives. Are we living in a way that shows the godly behaviour that the gospel should lead to? Or are there things that we need to change? Behaviour that we need to amend? I'm going to pray for us and let's pray that we keep working these things through. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for preserving Paul's letter to Titus in the way that you have. Thank you for the way it's included in the Bible for us as your scripture. Lord, as we read this truth, we pray that you would be reminding us of the truth of the gospel of Jesus, your grace and your mercy to us. We pray that our understanding of forgiveness in Christ would change the way that we live. We pray for our lives. We ask that we would be striving to live for Jesus. We pray um, for those who have been specifically appointed to lead us, please guard them from pride and from error. Lord, we pray for each of us. Please help us to use your word to encourage and to rebuke. We pray that we'd be growing in our knowledge of you and in our Christ-likeness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.